Welcome to another episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Mumley. And Jack just made a joke before you were able to get the joke. Because the poem that we're talking about is titled, And. I prefer it to be sort of an Illuminati-type secret code for anybody <laughs> who's, who's listening through. Okay, okay. That's fine. Before we get into the poem, we've got another desperate plea. We're going to try to keep it the same level of desperate each time. We don't want to increase desperation, but at the same time, the stakes are high. So you can go into iTunes. You can give us five stars. It would be so great. It would help us a lot. Algorithms, etc., control the way we live and digest information. And we have nothing to do except try to maximize our algorithmic potential. And you can help us do that. You know how Netflix made that movie, The Princess Switch, about the two princesses, but like also one of them's a baker or something? That movie, the idea for that was handed to some writer because an algorithm was like, hey, did you know that most of the people who like romantic comedies also like The Great British Baking Show? Make a baker princess switch movie where it's like Princess Diaries meets The Great British Baking Show. And so now we have The Princess Switch, which, by the way, Definitely go watch that on Netflix if you like rom-coms or the Great British Baking Show like I do. But like algorithms are very important. And so we need we need them on our side and you can help help us get them to join us. Yes, exactly. Well, the poem that we have called And is by the poet Ray Armand Trout, who is a quite different poet than Mary Oliver, who we talked about in our last episode. A little bit about her. She was one of the founding or formative people in the language poetry movement that was taking place in the 60s and 70s, which sometimes appeared as just the word language and sometimes appeared with a bunch of equal signs in between each letter and all the letters were in all caps, which I think really gets you the idea about what the movement was about. In short, it was kind of about like rather than taking language for granted as a way to express our, you know, unified emotional selves. Rather, we will use language to draw attention to language and sort of destabilize meaning. And it's very like postmodern, um, difficult stuff. At any rate, she is a wonderful poet. She won the Pulitzer Prize in 2010 with her collection Versed, and which also won the 2009 National Book Critics Circle Award. And the poem that we have and is from her collection Just Saying, which is also a great collection. And by Ray Armand Trout. One. Tense and tenuous grow from the same root, as does tender in its several guises, the sour grass flower, the yellow moth. Two, I would not confuse the bogus with the spurious. The bogus is a sore thumb, while the spurious pours forth as fish and circuses whoa and that's a poem this is a little wf this is a little wtf type poem kind of wft um, a little bit almost because it's little, like where am i even at this yeah, moment fwt man fwt so i thought you know it would be interesting to try to tackle this one which 
is is pretty like a lot of her poetry, but it's definitely on the more difficult ends of things. I love you very much, Connor. But I think that trying to tackle a poem like this is like trying to tackle smoke. We're going to dig around. We're going to like, we're going to get it all up in that cloud. But I feel like we try and tackle it. We're just going to hurt ourselves. I will say I would watch a video of someone trying to tackle smoke several times. So I think this could make for a good podcast, regardless of its uh, educational value. Good point. I would watch Jim Carrey fight a smoke cloud for approximately an hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So sometimes we try to do a quote unquote plot of the poem at the start of things. Yeah, let's do that. How's that going to work out for us? I don't think it's going to work out very well. Very little happens, in fact. But I will try to do a very basic play-by-play. There's two parts to the poem. The poem is called And. Both parts are about words and the meaning and the roots of words, where they come from, what they mean. The first part is about the words tense, tenuous, and tender. And they all come from the same root, which is like from the Latin tens or tensus, which is like to stretch. So they all come from that word. Then the second part sort of flipped because the first part is connecting these words that have different meanings because they have the same root. But the second part is about the word bogus and the word spurious, which have similar meanings, which are both just like mean like a sham or uh, bogus or, you know, whatever. They mean each other. The word spurious is in the definition for bogus, but they have different roots. And so the speaker says, do not confuse them. So that's the big plot of the poem. <laughs> I, w- I would also say part one is six lines and part two is eight lines. So in some ways, this is like a really janky sonnet. Yes, it is like a really janky sonnet. It doesn't rhyme. It's not broken in the right place and stuff. But I feel like it, it kind of doesn't matter. It's a It's a super janky sonnet. I think anything that has 14 lines is a sonnet. I like the way you think. So I have a bunch of thoughts. I picked this one, but I'm curious, you know, I, I threw this one at you. I wasn't sure how it's going to land. What are you thinking about? Well, as you so helpfully pointed out in your mini, I don't know if we call it a narrative, but in your sort of overall description of the poem, the distinction between part one and part two, I saw also a little bit as a distinction between looking at what is connective or additive and what is a difference or a distinction. So the first part of the poem is very interested in how these different words are still connected. And the second part is starts off with the negative, I would not confuse. And so it seems very interested in what the differences might be. That was sort of my initial way in beyond just the basic like, oh, these words have the same root. These words have the same meaning. Hmm. Uh, that was like where I started to get a little more of a foothold and started having some more thoughts. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's, I like that additive thinking about that. And I should say, partially, the reason I was thinking along those lines is because the title of the poem is the word and. And so as I was reading through it the first couple of times, I was thinking, why is this called and? What am I meant to be putting together in some way? Like, what what's that about? And so that was what led me to like, what's connecting? What's disconnecting? What's additive? What's, you know, separate? 
that was very much based around the the way that the title was operating on my thinking through, through a first read. Yeah, I think that's really right. Before we start sort of trying to understand the poem, maybe it would be helpful to talk about why this is very weird and incomprehensible. Let's do it. For one, it's called And, which is a very odd title because it's like, is it about the word and? And is usually a connection between words. It's sometimes not even a real, not a thought of as a word. Like if you think about the ampersand, it's like just a symbol. So to title it and is odd in that way. The first bit of the first part is fairly comprehensible. We're just talking about tense, tenuous, tender, come from the same root. And, you know, you can verify this in your local etymological dictionary. Google. But then there's this weird thing that happens. As does tender in its several guises, there's a colon. And then it goes, the sour grass flower, the yellow moth. The colon suggests that these two things are somehow related to tender. It's unclear. I do know, after a Google search, that they are both yellow. The yellow moth is obviously yellow. The sour grass flower is also yellow. I don't know what yellow has to do with anything. But there's this clear connection being made to tender and these two objects or two things, and I don't know what they are. Well, I would say, so in that first part, the only place the word and actually appears in the poem is the first line. Yes. Because later when it's when the poem talks about bogus and spurious, it says, I would not confuse the word bogus with the spurious. I would not confuse the bogus with the spurious instead of I would not confuse the word bogus and I would not confuse bogus and spurious would be another way to say that. Very intentionally, the word and is not used there. So particularly yes. in this first one where like there's a lot of actual talk about what connects things. Because the poem's title and you have the sour glass, the sour grass flower, the yellow moth, both are yellow. So both are connected in a way that's not obvious to reading the poem. Because if you don't know what a sour grass flower is, you ain't going to know that it's yellow. That's just not happening. So they are two things that are connected. You might not know they're connected by looking at them the same way in the next section of the poem, you get two things that are connected in their meaning, but don't look alike. Bogus and spurious don't look like each other on the page. And in the first section, you have three words that do look fairly similar in tense, tenuous, and tender. That kind of forms a bridge almost. Yeah, because the other word that's strange in the first part is guises. It's like, as does tender, so growing from the same root in its several guises. And then there's a colon. And so we're led to believe that the sour grass flower and the yellow moth are guises of tender in some kind of way. So I think that your attention to the appearance of something, they look similar, makes a sense in terms of there is a similar visual component to those two things and that they somehow are versions or like versions of tender somehow, which still eludes me a little bit. Along the lines of the several guises, tense, tenuous, and tender are all now guises of their original root word, tensus. They are not particularly adept disguises you'd probably pick them out of a crowd and be like yes you are still my friend larry even though you're wearing a false beard um <laughs> but like they're making an effort you know yes. you might not know that tensus is their root word you might guess that they have a shared root but there is a guise of sorts and then as we move into the next part of the poem the guises that are worn become 
more adept or become harder to penetrate. This is also making me think about, so the meaning of the root word tenses is to stretch. So we can see how that meaning morphs into the new word. So like tense is being stretched tight. You know, something's tense in that way. Tenuous is like very thin. So if you have like a, a tenuous claim, it's it's on very thin ground or something like that. Um, and tender, the thinness or the stretchiness has made it sort of easily hurt. You know, it's a, it's a tender thing. You could damage it easily. As a side note, I do like the word choice because it's like, why choose this sort of cluster of words is a important question. And the beginning kind of thought that I had was that there is a tenuous connection. There's lots of tenuous ands that are being made here. There's also a tension. You know, we talk about tension a lot in poetry, and there's a lot of tension in this poem in terms of like, there's two parts. What do they have to do with each other? Things seem tense anyway part two this is very strange more strange i think curiouser and curiouser yes which Uh, i say in part because the poet describes her work as quote unquote a cheshire poetics one that points two ways then vanishes (laughs) which i think is pretty apt because this is part one part two and then you expect a part three maybe to help you understand it and instead she's just like nah you you're fine yep Because, again, it begins relatively clear. I would not confuse the bogus with the spurious, okay? I mean, I I guess I'd been using them interchangeably, so maybe I'm guilty of of such confusion. But then we think we're going to get an answer, maybe, for why we shouldn't confuse them. And we're told that the bogus is a sore thumb, and the spurious pours forth, which is an interesting action that the word does, with fish and circuses. When the poem ends, it's pretty rude, I think. Write a letter. I will write a letter. Although I am the other rude person because I made us think about it. To whom um, it may concern, I was reading your poem and, and <laughs> I gotta say, I thought it was pretty rude how you left us all hanging with the fishes and the circuses. <laughs> I mean, what the, what's the fish and the circus got to do with each other? Sincerely yours, maligned in Minnesota. (laughs) So I actually had, I had more thoughts about the second. I I felt like I could really sink my teeth into the second part more so than the first. I felt like the first was sort of setting me up with the ideas that the second part then really dove into. Okay. And that may just be because I was missing stuff in the first part or because it's six lines instead of eight. I don't know. Um, I feel like this whole poem was just kind of like a a wild and wacky journey into a whole nether world of language that I very much enjoyed, but, you know, kind of was fumbling around in the dark in like a fun way. As I said, it starts off with the would not confuse. So you've got this strong like not as opposed to any kind of connectivity. But the things that you're then presented with are very similar, bogus and spurious. But then you've got a little bit of a clue of what bogus is. And bogus is a sore thumb. So to me, that conjures up an image of like a domestic injury. Like, oh, I'm hammering a nail. And ah, bogus, I whapped my nail super hard. (laughs) Uh, Or like, again, my main context for the word bogus is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in which they use it all the time and like surfers use it uh, as part of surfer slang. And it's like bogus, heinous, most non-triumphant. 
uh, to quote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, a key text in decoding and great, great film. Absolutely great. One one sour note that has aged very poorly and was indeed at the time still poor, uh, where they hug and say a bad word. But anyway, uh, everything else about it is beautiful and perfect, and it's so good. Anyway, I think you're being pointed towards like a colloquial bogus. Bogus is a is the, bogus and spurious, same meaning, like a false representation, basically. And bogus is like colloquial though. It's like a colloquial exclamation also. It's like, oh, bogus. This is no good. Ugh. While the spurious pours forth. So already it's like oceanic, right? It's huge. It's massive. It's spurious. But also, when do you say spurious in your day-to-day life if you are not, and I cannot stress this enough, an insufferable person to spend time around? <laughs> Because I feel like spurious is only ever used in like legalese, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, that's a spurious argument. I object, Your Honor. And then the judge is like, well, I think your objection is spurious. Got in my courtroom, Sam Spurious, and Spurious, Bogus, and How, the worst and, law firm. And get that circus out of here. Exactly. You're turning my courtroom into a circus, and I won't have it, Sam Spurious. <laughs> but there's like this legal flavor, it's very officious which led me down this road also because it pours forth like this big size to it um, that it feels sort of systemic or state sponsored or really official in some capacity. Like spurious is a different kind of false representation than bogus is. Bogus is like day-to-day average. Spurious is like, whoa, this is a problem. Which leads into these fishes and circuses, which like, okay, no, that's not a thing. But it's almost a thing because the Uh. traditional phrase is bread and circuses and the other thing that's fairly traditional is the fishes and the loaves so we're like really close to real things but it's a little bit obscured like it's wearing a guise of some sort almost but the direction that that then takes you in is back to rome and the time of jesus because bread and circuses is a reference to like the Roman opulence and the fishes and the loaves is Jesus, you know, miracles and stuff. And this is the time when we're like working in Latin, which is maybe where the root word for tense and tenuous and tender comes from. So it's kind of pointing us back to the beginning of the poem in this guised reference to these other things. And I don't know if there's anything actually to that, but that's what I got. Well, I'm into that. And I had made zero of those connections. And that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot to run with. This is making me very excited. So yeah, bread and circuses. It's also those are those make sense in kind of spurious things because like a bread and circus was like you're keeping the masses happy with this thing but it's not actually you're not helping their lives become better you're just like distracting them from the problems that they have you're giving them some entertainment you're throwing a a little sourdough at them and then they go on with their you know their bad lives so there's a kind of i don't know if it's spurious but it's sort of a bogus happiness that you're giving them perhaps and then fish and loaves If it is the kind of miracle thing, you know, obviously you could believe that it happened, but there's an element of, you could say, was something really transformed here, perhaps. It could be an exaggeration of the actual works of Jesus to feed the poor. Yeah. The historical Jesus versus the 
perhaps spurious representation. Um, I think you could also make a case that the charges that were leveled against Jesus by the Romans were spurious. Um, if you want to go down that road in some capacity in that the spurious pours forth. But anyway. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And okay, other random connections. Uh, pours forth. I love the oceanic. So we do also get the kind of fish from the pouring. You know, there's there's some wetness there. Also, fish can be fishy and fish and, and circuses are kind of like there's a bunch of tricks I don't know. There's a kind of like it's real stuff, but it it is a kind of show that has perhaps not as much substance or something. Also, in the more contemporary, like, you know, DC as a circus or like blah, 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 like how people use circus in that kind of way. It's like they're supposed to be doing something and they're just running around like you know, little babies. It's actually a swamp. <laughs> and uh, we need to drain the swamp. So. True. True. FYI. FYI. Sorry about that. Welcome uh, to Swamp Circus. <laughs> um, I really, really like both of that. I think the circus could also be like, if you think of the traditional depiction of what sort of carny or circus performer life would be compared to the show that's presented, that's sort of like the circus is this big positive front. And then behind the scenes, you've got a bunch of, you know, underpaid circus workers living in their caravans kind of thing, which is more of just like a sort of popular cultural representation than any reality, which I guess is another way in which that would be sort of a guise or another obfuscation or a spurious way of thinking about something. So then I also, this is slightly tangential, but so we talked about the roots in the first part of the poem. So then I was thinking, okay, bogus and spurious have the same meaning, but they probably have different roots. So I went on my etymological treasure hunt and Bogus, the root of bogus is actually unknown. It has two possible roots. One is tantrabobus, which is very strange. And it originally was like an odd looking object, but then it became used as the devil. <laughs> so it really jumped the thing. But probably because somebody was like, that lamp is Tantra Bobus, and somebody else was like, no, that lamp is an affront to my eyes. It's basically the devil. I actually, I know the reason that the, um, that the root of bogus is not uh, recorded. But okay, I want to know that. But then the other option before we get your elucidation is mm -hmm. bogey is a possible root, which the root of bogey is like bog, or something b-o-g-g-e or b-u-g-g-e which is kind of like a frightening specter or like now you could think of it as a bogeyman or something like that so that's where bogus is coming from spurious is more clearly from the latin spurious which is just <laughs> <laughs> spurious is a latin word we've made an english word <laughs> but it means born out of wedlock or oh. like um, illegitimate, basically. So Yikes. it's about bastards. So what's the reason why Bogus is not recorded? Oh, yeah, no, those are all really cool possible reasons. The actual reason uh, is because it's like a weird time loop because Bill and Ted took their telephone booth way back and they were using it and people heard them use it. But like 
they only know to use it now because they used it then. And so like it can't get written down. It's a whole <laughs> it's a whole circular thing. Oh, so wow. just FYI, those those all sounded really good. That stuff about the the boogeyman and whatever, like a choice, top shelf, love it. Um, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it was a couple of uh, California stoners from San Dimas. So, mm. OK, yeah, good. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. I should go rewatch those movies. Well, that's actually, we've made a bunch of connections. The other interesting, as you were alluding or had mentioned part of the, the I would not confuse is also tonally interesting to me because it's a negative thing, but it's also like it's a black and white thing. And it's like, a you know, it's pretending to be like, don't do this, you know, you fool kind of thing. And then, but then it doesn't give you an answer, right? It's an interesting tonal move because it 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 itself is kind of a bogus thing where it presents itself as, you know, I would not confuse these things as because I'm the speaker who knows about them. And then when I give you the reasons why, I mean, you're totally befuddled. What's also interesting is that it shifts from talking about the words themselves to saying I would not confuse the bogus with the spurious so it goes from being about the words themselves to being about what those words represent yes which is a little bit of a move from talking about how words share roots to like these are words with the same meaning but i think they are usually i guess used to describe different things here's some examples a sore thumb that's bogus but spurious the spurious different kettle of fish and circuses yes that's a really good point and this is something that our listeners cannot appreciate, but tense and tenuous and tender are all italicized. Bogus and spurious are not, which just serves to show that the first words are are being sort of talked about as words per se. Okay, so we've made a lot of connections. There seems to be a vague rationale behind the choices, but I still have some questions, which is, why is this a poem? is the main one. Oh, so just a little one that's super easy. This is an easy question. Because I feel like, here's a short anecdote. I'm with a relative. I love my relatives. They say, what are you doing with your life? I say, poetry. They give me a look. They say... A look of deep admiration, awe that you have chosen such a noble profession. No, it's like a look away and uh, it's a tense tense look. They Mm. say... I've just never been able to get into poetry. Then I would show them this poem, never, obviously. But if I did, they'd be like, see what I mean? In some ways, it's interesting to have this one coming after our talk about Mary Oliver. You know, she's among the more accessible and well-known poets and a poet for non-poetry readers, perhaps. This is a poem that, you know, is difficult in an annoying way and doesn't, there's a thing that it doesn't add up. So, but I'm curious because I like this poem myself and I love a lot of Armand Trout's work, but I'm curious, like, why is this a poem? (laughs) (laughs) Or like, what, what could you say to my relatives? A skeptical reader of this would be like, this is a, an, a, a word, this is a game that's being played with words to make me irritated. And that, 
I don't think it is. And I think it's something else. I think it is a poem, but I but I'm curious why. Well, in an effort to be super chill and cool and relatable. <laughs> I would immediately say, hey, y'all get done with Roland Barthes. <laughs> okay. Do, do y'all fuck with Barthes? No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, what I would say to your relative, relatives, maybe it's a gathering and everybody's listening to us now because they're like, oh my God, you're the close talking guys. Wow. Uh, it seems unlikely, but you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> I would say, hey, look, for a very long time, humans didn't have a word for blue. The sea was wine dark. We had a whole lot of ways of describing things that were blue. We didn't say blue. We didn't see it as a color because we didn't have a word for it. What we call things and the words we use shape the way that we see the world. We don't often think about how important that is. That before we have a name for something, oftentimes it can go unseen. That's how essential the language we use is. Something that poetry can do and something that this poetry is interested, that this poem is interested in doing is getting you to think on the granular level of language, the word level about what these words actually mean. What does this set of letters signify? Because language is a very poor means of communicating between people. It's the only one we have, but there are a lot of pitfalls contained within it. And it is important at some point Certainly, this poem argues, and I would argue, that we think about the words we use for stuff. And this poem, if you don't approach it as a puzzle to be solved, but as someone's investigation of language to be experienced, that you can get a lot out of it, and that the lesson of it, I think, the degree to which there is a single lesson, which is think a lot about words and their meanings and how very slight differences or changes over time can like have a big impact, think about how that shows up in your life. And think about how the language you use shapes your perception of reality and the way that you interact with the world. I like that a lot. I had mentioned um, before we read the poem that she is coming from this quote unquote movement, uh, the language movement in the 60s and 70s. And I think a lot of its aims have to do with what you were talking about, where we take for granted how we, there's sort of two things that happen. One, we take for granted the language that we use. And so we want to draw attention to that. And the other thing is, we are always trying to make meaning out of things. You know, if you say that, you know, I found in this person's apartment, like a ripped up letter, snotty Kleenex, you know, and a gun. And that's all I told you. This is a very extreme example. You might say this person had a really bad breakup and they're about to take some vengeance out or something. I said nothing about that. I only listed three things. But our brain has sort of worked, used its imagination. There's like, there must be a reason these things are put together. So I'm going to make meaning out of it. One thing that the language movement, I think, was interested in doing was deliberately resisting that kind of meaning. So it's like, I'm going to put these things together. They're going to seem grammatically or tonally, or there's going to be some kind of element to the language that makes you think they're related. But when you actually try to do the work of synthesizing it, it's going to not work. And that's obviously very irritating oftentimes. But the effect of it 
is that you suddenly are like, you have to be like, whoa, I actually do not get this at all. You know, what is actually being said? And then you can kind of like step back and look at the words themselves and sort of think about that. So I think that's a really good point. The other the other part is, this is something I'm interested in, in exploring, and we've talked about it a little bit in some poems, but a lot of times there's a, a speaker who's expressing something, and we sort of assume that the speaker is this, we make a person out of them, a sort of unified self. And, you know, we're like, you know, we can assume that this happened to them and that they're talking about it in this kind of way. You know, in the Mary Oliver poem, we may not know much about the speaker, but we have an idea that the speaker is a wise person who's, you know, lived a lot of life or whatever. Um, or in uh, Marie Howe's What the Living Do, that's a very narrative poem um, where we have the brother and, you know, they're going about their daily lives and we can almost see the person, right? And there's a kind of way that the language is taken for granted in some kind of way to create a sense of a self that we can read into. I don't think it's very easy in this poem to create a speaker from this poem. You know, part of it is we just don't have a lot of information, but the other part is we just have two parts. One is about tense and tenuous and tender, and the other is about bogus and spurious. And we can make connections, but it's like we don't have any biographical details. We also don't the connections that we make are sort of deep beneath like fish and circuses is like that was a deep cut to get something out of it you know and so i think there's a kind of it's not a self and i think that makes these kinds of poems particularly challenging because it's like where is this language coming from if it's not coming from like a particular person and there's two i guess reasons one could want to do this because obviously it can be annoying. And I think one is, and I think this is less true in this case, so I won't talk about that much. But sometimes if a person has had a, you know, a traumatic past, there's often a kind of rupture in their life and things might not feel cohesive to them. And so there's a kind of actual experience of a self because of trauma or something, which is oversimplifying in which they don't have a unified self. So it could make sense in a poem trying to express that to sort of resist the traditional ways that readers can, are able to create a self out of the words. The other, which I think is maybe more in line with this, is also the language that we use is coming to us from so many different places. And when it comes to us, it has all this sort of baggage with it. Like, this is a crazy example, but it's the one that I thought of. During the Iraq War, France didn't involve itself or something. They opposed the, the United States going into Iraq, and they were generally in opposition to a lot of the moves the United States made, particularly as part of the UN. And there was a, a joke that was made where people stopped calling French fries French fries and they called them freedom fries. Oh, it was more than a joke. They changed the name for them in the Senate dining room. In like oh. the how the congressional dining room, the the name was changed from French fries to freedom fries. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Well, as a young boy, it came to me in the form of a joke. 
<laughs> but it's probably um, for the best. Probably for the best. But in the in the first world war, we started calling sauerkraut liberty cabbage. Oh my god. I knew I had a vague idea that France opposed the Iraq war or something. So I knew that part about it. But I was starting to say freedom fries because I thought it was funny. But there's like the clear way that that has sort of baggage or connotations, which is that France was opposed to us. And so we can't associate ourselves with France. But the use of freedom there is suggesting that in France's opposition to our war, they are opposed to freedom and that we're standing for freedom or something. And by me saying that, I'm kind of like, you know, for the moment of me saying it, buying into or bringing, rebringing into the world all of those assumptions that are carried within that language. Even if myself, I don't have an opinion about freedom as it relates to France or something. Um, even if I haven't sort of put in the, the work to think about it. This is, was a longer example than I anticipated. The result of that, I think, is that we're often saying all these things that have this baggage, but it's not like coming from us, per se, as sort of singular agents. It's sort of like often coming from all around us due to a variety of different reasons. And so to have a speaker who sort of resists like being seen as like a bodied person with a single history, etc., draws attention to language for that some reasons, but also to the fact that language is coming to us in all of these different ways. And we can sort of like think about, it's not like the lack of, but just the ways in which language has a life and a force and a power that is outside of ourselves. And I feel like part of this poem even though it's like often a jokey about it, you know, it's, it's pretty, I think it's pretty funny, but it, it brings attention to that aspect of language a little bit. I totally agree. I'm not gonna, I'm resisting the urge to go down my Roland Barthes thing, <laughs> but like a big part of his thing is uh, in his mythologies book is all these different things that are signifiers or myths of bourgeois culture of the time that are maybe an inanimate object, but it means so much more than what it is because of all of the cultural power that is given to it. And he came to that by looking at how language, when we can articulate a single thing, there is all of this weight behind it. And as you're saying, that is weight that is often outside of our individual control. It is weight given to it by any number of you know the different sources that it comes from the cultural forces acting upon it so that when you say i would like some freedom fries please you are engaging with a whole lot of stuff beyond just like hey i think it's kind of dumb that they are calling him this now right no i think that's really right and and to bring it to the poem specifically you know part of what part two i would not confuse the bogus with the spurious is talking about the like other kind of baggage that those words have or something or the other kinds of meanings even if the meaning in the dictionary is very similar that when you say spurious you're bringing forth a pouring of fish and circuses or whatever whatever that may be and one thing that i think is us particularly cool about this poem is in the way that fish and circuses if it has those the bread and circus and fish and loaves, like what it 
the combination of it, but without sort of like explaining. And then I thought about the bread and circus phrase in Roman times or like no one would be that boring about it, but to just sort of do fish and circuses is to like combine in an and kind of way immediately, like all of those different baggages without you knowing it. It's a way of making a new one or something, right? So in the same way that like freedom fries is a phrase that now has like, we understand the baggage that it has. If you were to suddenly say like Operation Freedom Fry or something, which is not a good thing, but it combines Freedom Fry and Operation Freedom or something, which was a thing. Anyway, then there would be a new, you're, you're, you're bringing in new baggage, like in the moment of you saying that. So the, the poem is doing is introducing new sort of like connotative jumbles in the moment of the poem. And I feel like that's like a really, that's like a really exciting part of the poem. What I also like about that last line is that the two other things that we're talking about hinting at both include bread, which isn't mentioned at all. So it is very much this creation of a third thing as yet unnamed, but is present, uh, which is cool. And also spurious just sounds like circus, sort of spurious circus, um, <laughs> which seems like it should be a lit mag already. But if it's not somebody out there, start spurious circus, the lit mag. It'd be pretty cool. One thing that she said apparently about her poems is you can hold the various elements of my poems in your mind at one time, but those elements may be hissing and spitting at one another. Should we read it again? Yeah, let's do it. And by Ray Armantrout. One, tense and tenuous grow from the same root, as does tender in its several guises, the sour grass flower, the yellow moth. Two, I would not confuse the bogus with the spurious. The bogus is a sore thumb, while the spurious pours forth as fish and circuses. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know, tweet at us, or shoot us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com.